Hi, it's Kim from Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Beth Wetmore. Odessa, Texas, February 15th, 1976. 14-year-old Gloria Ramirez, raped on Valentine's Day night by a 20-something white Dale Strickland, makes her way to the only house around on an otherwise deserted oil field, Mary Rose Whitehead's. She knocks on the door. Mary Rose's decision to answer her door to this stranger begins an examination not just of these two women, but of their entire community from Larkspur Lane and beyond. Valentine asks us to consider, what do you do when a stranger knocks on your door? Can you see a person of color for themselves, and not only in relation to your whiteness? What is a woman to do with her rage? Told from six different points of view, Valentine is an unforgettable debut novel, and has been a departmental favorite from when we got to read it last summer. I had the great pleasure of talking with Beth about her novel, its characters, and in particular the themes of mercy, guilt, wrath, and rage. It was a question, admittedly, I had longed to ask based on my response to reading the book for the first time, and I'm glad Beth was excited to talk about those themes too. I think our conversation makes the most sense for after you've read the novel, unless you either don't mind spoilers or a rather well-informed setup for your reading. Uh, We do get into quite a bit of the bones of the book, which was super enjoyable for me, and I hope you enjoy as well. And if you're using this as a supplement for a class that you're teaching, I hope you find it useful. We're thrilled that Valentine debuted number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore is available now in hardcover, ebook, and digital audio formats from our main imprint, Harper. So today on the phone with us, we have Elizabeth Wetmore, author of the amazing debut novel, Valentine. So Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with the story behind Valentine. So Valentine started its literary life as a short story, and in its final version, which we can now buy on shelves or electronically, it's the story of a community of women told in from six alternating perspectives, but it's also very much the story of a place, of Odessa, Texas in 1976, the story of the culture and circumstances of a one-economy small town. What was it like transforming your short story into this novel? And why was it as important to you to tell the story of a place in addition to telling the story of these women? You know, at first it was really difficult. Um, The short story is the form I'm most comfortable with, and actually it's the form I most love. Um, When I look back at my own reading and, and and the work that has been sort of most transformative to me. Um, those are often collections of short stories. And and to this day, I don't really think I, I know how to write a novel. Um, and I guess maybe that's just part of it, right, is that every book has to teach you how to write it. 
you know, um, and maybe no writer ever really knows how to write a particular novel, you know. For me, the process had to do with listening to the work and letting it sort of steer me along. The short story that this began with, which was actually the second chapter of the book, which was uh, Mary Rose's chapter, that short story, um, you know, in in the end, I I kept coming back to it and it just didn't feel complete to me. And it kind of and it kind of went from there. Um, There's another chapter in the book, Jenny's chapter, that was also a short story in its own right before I sort of folded it into the book. So once I made my peace with the idea that I was okay with with sort of listening to the characters and the voices in the world and letting that sort of teach me how to do it and letting it get larger, you know, um, then it became a little easier. But the book's roots in the short story, I think, are apparent throughout the structure. You know, I I mentioned Jenny's chapter was also a short story, um, and many of the other chapters have the arc of a short story, and I liked that. I I wanted each chapter to be part of a larger whole, you know, the sort of overarching story of, of this young woman and what has happened to her and these other women and girls in town and the effect it has on them. But I also wanted for each chapter to feel somewhat contained and complete in its own right, and that's it's just kind of a personal sort of preference on my part. I, I love, I love the idea of chapters feeling as each as if each chapter has its own arc, as if as if each chapter could sort of be plucked out of the larger story and and treated as a as a story in its own right. So, but I also had to make my peace with the idea that I was going to allow the women and girls' voices to direct the book, and for me that meant a really a deep dive and and kind of an emotional one into each character's voices and circumstances. To write these characters, I had to access every bit of my own understanding and mercy and anger and forgiveness. And and I have to say that as, as some of the, you know, initial reviews are coming in and some initial responses are coming in, some that are the most gratifying to me are the ones that really focus on, that really, where the readers have really honed in on the incredible amount of rage that there is in this book. Um, I, I found that to be, um, I found that to be so gratifying that people are spotting that, you know. Um, and so I had to see these characters, you know, clearly, flaws and all. And I also had to see them as larger themselves, you know. Um, the whole world, I guess, contained in each woman's story or each girl's story. The, the easy answer is that the place was important to me because Texas looms large in people's imaginations, you know, for good and ill and deservedly and undeservedly. And, you know, and, and as a girl, I loved reading Westerns, um, Larry McMurtry, Elmer Kelton, and so forth. And when I was older, the work of Cormac McCarthy. And I still do enjoy Westerns, as I discovered recently when I read True Grit for the first time. Have you read that? I have, I have not, but it is, oh something, it is something that I have seen a lot of people reading lately. So perhaps it will well, be a quarantine read for me coming up. It, but the land looms large in all of those works, you know, and for good reason. It's hard to drive across West Texas, which can take you a couple of days without, you know, sort of gasping aloud at the sky and you know, the unrelenting flatness of it all and the smell of petroleum and the wind. Um, and so so the, the landscape looms large and it's, and it's a singular landscape. And, and of course, growing up in a one economy town, you know, and, and being subject to the sort of the boom and bust cycles um, was very familiar to me. But the word 
difficult answer, you know, um, in terms of writing this story in this place is that I was away from home for a really long time. And when I left home at 18, I spent a lot of years sort of running hard in the other direction. I didn't want to write about my hometown. I didn't want to write about Texas. And, you know, in 1976, I was nine years old. So I was about the same age as the little girls who live on Larkspur Lane, um, Deborah Ann Pierce. I was about the same age as Deborah Ann Pierce. Then, I I guess, as now, I suspect, I, I understood from a very early age that there were you know, those who left and those who stayed when it came to talking about the women and girls in my hometown. And I was determined to be, you know, one of those who left. Um, but for me, you know, that there's this kind of common story of the local girl who leaves this geographically isolated, deeply conservative hometown, you know, because she's a bright student and she's a standout in her English class and she gets a scholarship to the University of Texas and never looks back. Um, but the, the story that was my story, you know, was that of a, a mediocre student who sort of kicked around her hometown for a couple of years you know, driving out to the oil patch and, you know, hanging out with her girlfriends and, you know, pilfering beer money and cigarette money from her mother's purse and and hanging out with girls who, who ended up staying in part because they had no idea where to go or, or, or how to do it. You know, I was one of those girls who sort of fled my hometown under a cloud of conflict and drama, you know, no real plans and and no real survival skills um and and it took me a long time to make enough sense of that life to be able to look back on it with a through a lens of compassion and empathy and love you know i really do believe that you know every novel every book is a love letter right and if this was a love letter to my hometown it took me a really long time to see it clearly enough to be able to write that love letter One of the things that I really like about Valentine are the individuals, particularly Gloria and Mary Rose, which are kind of obvious since they are the the two people that we we sort of really follow. I love Corinne Shepard because for whatever reason, whenever I read Corinne's chapters, Corinne Corinne Shepard makes me think of Shirley MacLaine's character from steel magnolias and i don't i don't know why my brain continually makes that association but i read i read corinne's chapters in shirley mclean's weezer's voice in my in my head but rereading valentine uh, i was really struck not just by how woman-centric this novel is but also how it is the story of generations of women um, in this community, um, generations of women on on Lochber Lane. Um, There's Amy, who's Mary Rose's daughter, uh, Laura Lee, who's Suzanne Ledbetter's daughter, in addition to um, Deborah Ann, who is one of the most precocious and amazing narrators that I have ever, I've ever come across. Um, In one of Suzanne's chapters, the narrator talks about Suzanne's family background and how her relatives are a series of grifters with Suzanne by contrast very much a workhorse of a woman who is always busy trying to escape her background and the narrator says they would never hold it against her but a woman can spend her whole life proving everybody wrong and that line really stuck with me as I read the rest of the novel and thought about you know everything else in the novel that had come 
before that, because I think something that nearly all the women in Valentine have in common is, is that very line. The fact that they are proving everybody and sometimes even, or sometimes especially themselves, wrong, either by things that they accomplish or overcome or do. What was it like for you to write these women? Did some come more easily to you than others? Were some a bit more difficult than others? None of them came easily to me. Okay. Um, not one. The, the first words that I set down on paper that became the story that eventually became the book that it became the book that eventually became this book, okay. you know, those words happened 14 years ago. So, you know, a little longer actually now, 14 years from the time I set down those first words to the time I sold the book, you know, so I had a lot of time to think about it. And I took a lot of time off from writing the book too. I worked on other things. I, you know, held down jobs. I raised a kid, you know, kept the, kept a roof over the head, the whole thing. So I had a lot of time to think about this and, and not one of them came easily. Um, in a lot of ways, Corinne Shepard was actually the, the happiest surprise because I had always imagined her as a very minor character who sort of occasionally wandered across the street and volunteered to babysit children in a pinch or deliver a you know an important piece of news and she was she was the biggest surprise to me and once I kind of I realized that she was becoming something more she actually in a lot of ways was one of the easier characters for me to write insofar as any of them were easy and I think a part of it for me was that I knew a lot of women like Corinne Shepard growing up. I, I saw these, these you know, tough old women. You know, Corinne's family is actually one of the few families that's been in that area, you know, since the 1880s. That, that whole part of Texas wasn't even settled until about 1882 or so, you know, which is late. And part of that's because there's nothing out there. There's no water. There's nothing out there, you know. Um, and in fact, if it weren't for oil, it would still be a tiny little, you know, sheep and cattle ranching community, probably. But, um, but anyway, she was probably one of the easiest. And, and it was because I had, I had seen so many women like her. But also, I, I came to really identify with this woman who reaches a place in her life where she believes that all the big decisions she's ever going to make have been made. When this book opens, I mean, Corinne is, is someone who's basically decided that she's just going to kind of drink and smoke herself to death, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, she's grieving for her husband, and she's decided that she really doesn't have anything left to give to the world, and the world has nothing left to give to her. And I, and I loved that, and I think a lot of people can kind of reach those points in their lives where they feel like all the big decisions they've made are, are, are made, and... Now they're just kind of marking time, you know. So I, I love that about her. And I love I loved how unlikable she is in a lot of ways. I mean, at the beginning of the book, you know, this is a woman who literally turns her back on a pregnant woman who's just gone into labor and walks back across the street to, like, fix herself a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> love that, you know. So, so in so far as any of them were easy, I guess probably Corinne was one of the easier characters. But none of them came easily. And part of it was because I, I really had to interrogate every decision I made, particularly with regard to character. Um, I have to look at things for a long time, and my first instincts are often not my best. So I thought that these characters would come easily to me, 
sisters were voices of women I spent my entire childhood listening to, um, you know, sitting on the back porch after supper, listening to my mom and her girlfriends and the neighbors um, talk about their jobs, you know, talk about their lives, their children, their work, and, and during oil bust, listen to them talk about who had lost their jobs or where they could find jobs or who was leaving town. And so their voices were were, were terribly familiar to me and I think I believe that because those voices were so clear to me I, I already understood the women and girls behind them and then I would build character and then to some degree a story from there but I didn't understand them at least not in ways that were meaningful enough to write fiction it took me a, a long time to see these characters in ways I think that were nuanced enough to, to be able to write about them and, and, and I think part of that has to do with my own sort of living and my own sort of story. Um, you know, it wasn't until after I became a mother myself that I was able to look at some of these characters and realize how terribly young they are in this book. Mary Rose Whitehead is 25 years old in this book. She has a nine-year-old daughter. And I don't think I really understood on a visceral level how how incredibly young these women were how incredibly hard they worked um, how much bullshit they put up with um, how angry they were yeah (laughs) you know and and it took me a long time to do that in terms of the hardest character to write though that's for me that's an that is actually a really easy question um glory was the hardest character for me to write hands down i was second guessing myself the whole way with her her voice was the least familiar to me, and, and I had to ask myself frequently um, and revisit this question why I had chosen a young 14-year-old, you know, a 14-year-old girl of Mexican-American heritage to be my character. I, you know, I, I had to think about what, what does it mean to observe her suffering. I had to ask myself if I really, if hers was my story to tell, you know, if I had the, really had the right to tell her story. And that was tricky for me, you know, um, because on the one hand, you know, although I'm not an academic, I've, I've read enough to understand, you know, the, the terrible harm and suffering caused by the white gaze. But on the other hand, you know, I grew up in a in a place and in a and in a world where, you know, I'm I'm very accustomed to women and girls being told that you know stories are not theirs to tell. So of all my characters, you know, she's the one that I most worry that I didn't get it right. You know, to this day, I don't know if I got it right. A, a young woman actually sent me an email um, through my website over the weekend, and she said that she wanted to buy the book. Um, and I know she was a young woman because she told me she was a young woman, and she. She said she wanted to buy the book, but she wanted to she wanted to know on what authority I felt like I had the right to write from the point of view of uh, of a Latina girl. Mm-hmm. And my answer to her was, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I do have the authority. I don't know that I did do it right. I did my best. I I tried to interrogate my choices. I talked with friends who have more direct experience. But at the end of the day, you know, I I ultimately had to make the decision and go for it um, and and let the chips fall where they may and and hope that I did it well. So and I and I will say, too, then, you know, right behind Glory in terms of characters, I worried that I did or did not get it right would be her mother, Alma, Mm -hmm. you know, um, who is an undocumented worker. 
you know, Glory was born in the U.S. You know, she's a, she's an American citizen. Her mom is an undocumented worker, and her and her uncle Tio is actually a an American citizen who who earned his citizenship through serving in the military, you know, and serving in a war overseas. And so those all Glory and her entire family. I think I was very mindful that I I might not get it right no matter how much I tried. And at the same time, when I asked myself then, well, why do it, right? Why not just have this crime happen to a young white girl, right? Why, why the need for this decision-making there was that I knew I couldn't write this book without, you know, tackling head-on the terrible racism and xenophobia that I witnessed growing up there and that lingers to this day. To this day, there's not a single Latino member of the city council different readers might see her story differently depending on where they were from or who they were i had i've had a few white women they when they first read the book they were surprised that there was no justice for her and um and i found that astonishing that anyone would read this book very deep would read deeply into this book and really think that you know she was going to get any justice at all um it was clear to me from early in the book that she was not going to get justice, at least not in a court of law, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I, and I think, too, I mean, I, I, one of the most striking parts and a, and a moment that I clearly remember my reaction to when I read Valentine for the first time was a line that Mary Rose says. She says, what the hell is wrong with this place? Why don't we give a shit about what happens to a girl like Glory Ramirez? I mean, it's as relevant a question in the context of the, of the novel as as it is just today, walking around. Right. And and I think I think that's a super important question to ask, um, not just as a question in the novel, but particularly as you just said, for for white women to think about uh, in mm-hmm. particular. And that sort of leads me into, I admit, a, a very long question about uh, about a few themes. You hit on a few themes earlier when we started our conversation, and I'm super excited to talk with you about them because um, this <laughs> because this was something that really really stuck with me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ramble a question on a bit, uh, and then if we need to go back to parts of it, we absolutely can. Sure. Um, but a few themes that stood out to me is the question of justice or its absence. Um, but more than justice, because I think in some ways, to me, the, the lack of court justice, if you will, that was not surprising to me. Mercy, guilt, and wrath are things that are super interesting to me in this book. And I see them as, as kind of one begets the other that begets the other. Early in the book, Mary Rose tells us in her first chapter that mercy is hard in a place like this. And she she says this in context of tr- trying to identify with Dale Strickland, who is the young man who rapes Glory Ramirez. Guilt is interesting to me, particularly how Potter, who is Corinne Shepard's husband, how Potter and Mary Rose experience guilt Potter not saying something, sort of sort of realizing in that moment that something is not right, but not doing anything is, we learn that it, that becomes his life's biggest regret. Mary Rose mentions three mistakes she made the day Strickland came to her house. She says, And knowing that I have failed another woman's daughter in all the ways that matter, I now badly want to be a person of valor. 
what will my great act of valor look like? And there's very sort of, I guess, light comedy relief uh, in that moment because it, it ends up being, on the one hand, most immediately splashing someone with, <laughs> with water. Um, mercy and guilt, for me, combined into this, this very unconscious undercurrent. It comes to a head in Corinne's final chapter. In Corinne's final chapter, she pulls out an Old Testament verse, um, which is, In wrath, may you remember mercy. Wrath and and rage are things that I did not, I wasn't aware when I read it the first time that I was feeling as angry and as, as rageful as I was. And I, I distinctly remember finishing, the first time I finished this novel, it was... 646 on a Thursday morning in the summer um, and I was I was having my coffee I was getting ready to getting ready for work um, getting myself together um, and I only had uh, Corinne and Glory's chapter left to read and so I, I sat there and I was reading it and I was by by the time I got to to sort of the big denouement in in Corinne's final chapter I remember I was perched on the couch and once I finished the book, I put it down and I was just vibrating with anger. And I had no idea that I was as angry as I was. You know, I was in that moment, Mary Rose with old lady on her shoulder, you know, pointing, pointing the end of a gun at someone who, you know, anyone, really, anyone who was a man. Uh, I was also, I was also Mary Rose in that moment. So why were these themes of mercy, of guilt, of wrath and rage and anger, why were these themes productive for you to explore in this novel? How do they allow you to talk about how justice works in Valentine? Because it doesn't work in sort of traditional quote-unquote nice nice ways in this book but yet it, it does seem to be there is a kind of fulfillment I guess mm -hmm. you know this is such a great question and I've been thinking about it for days now <laughs> uh, but you know and, but before I answer can I just can I can we just go back to something you said very early about about Mary Rose um, and her comment that mercy is hard in a place like this. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in some ways, I mean, I was just going back to the sort of unforgiving nature of the land, you know, but, and also, you know, the kind of unforgiving nature of, of settlement of that part of the world, you know, that, that whole part of the world is, is land that was seized from other people, right? Um, there's very much a kind of a mentality, I think, in the petroleum industry that, you know, sort of views life in general as kind of a zero-sum game, you know. But, um, and so all of that was sort of going through my head. But one of the things that was so interesting to me about that moment, and it was something I realized after I wrote it and was and was going back to revise, and I, and I decided to keep it as it was, is that, you know, when she says mercy is hard in a place like this, you know, that's on the heels of imagining that young man's morning and what it must have been like for him and it was so striking to me that she doesn't ever try to get into glory's head in that way right right and so you know here's a character who's really in a lot of ways you know the 
you know, one of the heroes of the book, you know, and yet even in this moment, even with this sort of evidence of this young girl on her doorstep and the horrors of what's happened to her, when she tries to access compassion and mercy, she first tries to access that by thinking of his morning, you know what I mean? Right. And it really, really tied into, for, you know, it really, really kind of goes to the core of, of a lot of what's going on in this book, you know, which is the, the sort of terrible effects of racism in the, in the sense that, you know, you know, these white people are not ever able to see Glory fully, right? They're right. not ever able to see her uncle fully. Potter, you know, that, that moment at the Sonic, you know, with Potter, when he, he sees that something's wrong and he doesn't act, right? Um, there's a very quiet moment where, you know, he says to to his wife that he couldn't tell for sure how old she was, right? You know, and there are all kinds of studies about this, you know, about how white people do not see people of color clearly. So, you know, to this well-intentioned white man, right? I mean, Potter is a lovely character, but even in that moment, he cannot look at her and see a 14-year-old girl. You know, the truth is, for much of the writing of the book, I'm not sure I was able to talk or even think in ways that felt productive about how justice works. You know, to, let's put it this way. In several drafts, the bodies of the guilty and the bodies of those who were mistaken for guilty, in other words, innocent, you know, ended up being buried in the desert. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so sure. I, had, I, had several, I had several bodies buried in the desert in earlier drafts. And while it felt great to write it... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think uh, I'm glad I came out on the other side of that. I, I really had to work out my own feelings about justice and retribution and drafts, and I'm not sure I've ever answered or resolved my own feelings about them. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, I I really love looking to some of the minor characters to see how justice might work. Um, Tio Victor, for example, who's recently come back from a war, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, he understands how devastating vengeance is, right? He makes a decision in that last chapter that he's not going to seek vengeance, you know, um, on on behalf of his niece, because, you know, he, he, he has the lived experience of understanding that vengeance just causes more suffering. Um, you know, Evelyn, you know, the, the kind of feisty owner of the restaurant where Carla works in the second to last chapter, Carla, who does exact some vengeance on, you know, on a character, um, some kind of rough justice, um, you know, Car- uh, Evelyn says, you know, about this character, you know, probably wasn't the first time somebody ran him over, probably won't be the last, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, insofar as Dale Strickland suffers, right, and insofar as there's any justice for his crime, the only justice that we can kind of hang on to, I think, is the justice that's going to come from the life he lives you know i i had to kind of contend with next is 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 there any justice and if so how does that how is that manifested and i have to admit there was a little part of me too the whole time i was writing this book i was i was aware of kind of the 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 wonderful tradition of westerns and also how like absolutely absent of women and characters of color (laughs) most of those westerns are and there was a little desire on my part because i loved westerns growing up there's a little desire on my part to kind of take some of those tropes of the western the rough justice for example and kind of turn them on their heads a little bit you know with a a story that featured women and girls as the as centerpieces of the books Um, Dale Strickland is going to have a terrible 
violent life. He's probably go. He probably is going to die young. Yeah. He probably is going to to die violently. But more importantly, you know, his punishment is also going to be the man he sees in the mirror every day, living and dying in a world that you see as nothing more than a zero sum game. You know, this idea that for you to win, someone else has to lose. And if someone else wins, you've necessarily lost. It's such a harmful and and devastating way to live. And and I think we're seeing a little of that right now, the kind of fruits of when people who with that kind of viewpoint, you know, acquire real power, the kind of, you know, damage they can can wreak on the planet, the bodies of women and girls, you know, on their own citizens. And so, and which kind of brings me to this idea of mercy and forgiveness, um, both of which I have a fair amount of experience with. That line, from that you talked about in Wrath, May You Remember Mercy, um, that comes from Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Um, He's a minor prophet known for his beautiful writing, which is pretty much how I make most of my decisions about what to read in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I could read Ecclesiastes all day long. It's terribly depressing but it's so very beautiful and um and so he was known for his beautiful writing he was a contemporary of jeremiah but he was also known for sort of questioning god in really direct ways why doesn't god act you know why why doesn't why isn't there intervention to bring justice to those who've harmed the hebrews you know, Mary Rose's fear and fury in this book bring her to a place where she's very close to killing an innocent man. And and in this case, you know, mercy may prevent a terrible miscarriage of justice. And yet we, I, hopefully, by the time we get there, I think readers can understand what brings her to this place. You know, I, and so for me, I mean, mercy and, and forgiveness, you know, again, I've had a fair number amount of experience with that, as probably most of us have. But I think a lot about forgiveness in terms of being on the wrong side of things, <laughs> I guess, yeah. you know, whether you're on the wrong side of history, you know, which is um, kind of in a lot of ways my family's story and the importance of, of asking for it. Um, you know, I, I, I thought a lot when I was writing this book about the importance of, about the need, I guess, in this country for a huge swath of the population. And, and I'm talking to white people here to say, I'm sorry, you know, and to ask for forgiveness. And furthermore, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a terribly churchy woman, you know, but, I, but I'm churchy enough to believe in the importance of also saying, how can I make it better? And then listening for the answer. Mm-hmm. And you know, this was something that I was sort of um, interrogating, I guess, as I was writing this book. And I thought a lot about what what are the things then that prevent us from doing that? What right? What are the things that prevent us from asking for forgiveness or taking action? You know, in the case of um, Potter, who comes to see his inaction at that Sonic is one of the great regrets of his life—a a life, a long-lived life. You know, mm-hmm. and and it brought me back again and again to this idea of fear. You know, one of my favorite lines in the book comes from um, Glory's second chapter, where she says, "This is a war story," yeah. and it actually actually comes up in her first chapter at all as well when she recall when she recalls her uncle's advice for surviving a war he tells her don't panic you must never panic mm-hmm. and it's that resoluteness her ability to gather herself together and sort of quietly creep away from this man who's raped her that's the thing that saves her life you know glory saves her own life in this book and for me that was really crucial and she she saves her own life at the beginning of the book you know, and she and her uncle save her at the end of the book as well by simply 
driving away. One of the questions I ask myself in this book and then is that what is the war that's being fought in this book? You know, it's the war against the bodies of women and girls, particularly, you know, women and girls of color, um, you know, but it's also the war against fear. What do you do when a stranger comes to your door? You know, I mean, right. sometimes I think that's the biggest question any of us will ever face, right? Is when the stranger comes to your door, you know, whether it's an injured girl seeking help or a family of migrants workers seeking help you know when that stranger comes to your door however that looks do you open the door and help for all of her flaws and short-sightedness and her inability to really see glory you know fully I mean Mary Rose does open that door you know and she she puts herself and her family in real danger in that moment mm -hmm. you know um, and for me that's that's the the rupture you know for Mary Rose the rupture for Mary Rose happens in her very first chapter that's the thing that that that's the action that changes everything for her and so while the story of the book is her sort of gradually kind of falling apart to find herself in this moment where she's really in danger, you know, of allowing her wrath to overtake her, sort of bring about a tragedy through her own actions. The moment that changes her is that first moment. It's the moment when she hears the knock on the door and she makes that decision to answer it. The use of the word rape is, I think, significant in the book because Mary Rose is a character who makes sure to not euphemize it, especially in her confrontations and dealings with other members of the community. Why was it important to, to essentially make Mary Rose say rape and insist that other characters in the novel think of what happened to Glory as rape? Well, initially, I was just trying to cleave closely to what I remembered of the mores of that time and place, where women's bodies and the work that they do, you know, or the things that happen to those bodies are often described in euphemistic terms. And I think it's probably, you know, I mean, this book is set in 1976. I think in a lot of ways that's probably changed, although I can attest to the reality that there are still many places, including my hometown, where there's still a resistance to talking about women's bodies in honest, non-euphemistic terms. And so, you know, you have menopause being described as the change, you know, or periods being described as your monthly or mm -hmm you know, becoming a woman, nursing versus breastfeeding. And these are all such loaded terms, right? And and where I'm from, which I, I really do consider West Texas to be the South, and all the ways that really matter, both good and bad, it is still very much the South. And so this, this sort of resistance to talking about the things that happen to women's bodies and the women and the thing women's bodies do, sort of the baldest of terms, you know, was something that I was really um, interested in. And this comes up a lot in the book, this idea of, you know, what we name things matters in terms of our own healing, in terms of dealing with trauma. You know, in the first chapter, Glory makes the decision that going forward, she will not be called Gloria, right? right? That she'll be called Glory instead because of the memory of him saying her name in the midst of this attack over and over again. And, and she says in that chapter, it's such a small change, right? The change from Gloria to Glory, that for her in that moment, it means the world. And, and so I think for Mary Rose, this rupture that we talked about a little early, earlier that happens when she opens to the door to this young woman and sees what's happened to her, sees the evidence of what happens to her, you know, I think it shakes Mary Rose up in every way. And one of the ways is that, it, it, you know, she seems suddenly unable to countenance 
the kind of, frankly, bullshit that she sees from the, you know, the women of the church or, or neighbors or from her own husband. I kind of fixated on this idea of what we call things, you know, can make a difference and, and in terms of survival and otherwise. Well, Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Is that it? That's... Oh, my God. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for these amazing questions. Thank you for reading the book, and thank you for these amazing questions. Uh, and be well. Okay, Kim, thank you. And, you're and, so uh, welcome. Thank you for reading the book, and thank you for these amazing questions. And be well.